Hey friends, would you join me in a word of prayer as we get ready to jump into the word? Father, thank you for uh, the gift of another Sunday. Thank you for your word. We come with open hands and humble hearts to receive from you this morning. And of course, on this Palm Sunday, we remember, Jesus, that you are the king, that you came to save us, not through military victory and external signs of force, but you came to save us through your death for us and your resurrection. So Jesus, we worship you as our king and we welcome you this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, my name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors here. If we haven't had a chance to meet, I'm so glad you're with us at FBC Online. I just want to invite you to open up a Bible with me to the book of John, chapter 2. We spent a few weeks in chapter 1 in the book of John, and now we're continuing our sermon series that we've called Come and See, which is walking through the gospel of John little by little. And now, again, we're starting chapter 2. I don't know about you, but I love going to weddings. In fact, I could look back at a time earlier in life where I would say, if I could go to a wedding every weekend in the summertime, I would do it. They are just so much fun. I remember in our early 20s, uh, a lot of friends from college were getting married. It felt like every summer there were a number of weddings that we were going to, and I absolutely Loved it because weddings combine a few of my favorite things, right? One, uh, weddings often preach the gospel, right? They point us to Jesus. And as the bride and groom are united and make this commitment to one another, we're reminded of the love of Jesus for his bride, the church. And so it points us to who Jesus is and the love of God. Uh, Number two, uh, weddings remind us of love, right? We celebrate love. People coming together uh, it's, it's joyful. We, if we're married, we remember our own wedding, the own, uh, our own vows that we've made to our spouse. The life that we share and get to live with our spouse is reinforced by the wedding. So weddings celebrate the gospel. They celebrate love. And, and lastly, weddings have free food, right? The gospel, love, and free food. I don't know what else you need, people. It's a beautiful, beautiful time. When you combine that with good music and good friends, you get to dress up. It makes for a great evening. I will say, though, that uh, weddings also can make for some kind of awkward moments. Right? I've been to weddings with uh, fights that broke out. I've been to weddings where people have thrown up. I've been, to, uh, I've been late to weddings. Okay, so that was kind of awkward. One time we were pulling up to the wedding and walking in while the bride was walking down the aisle. And we kind of walked past each other. And it was, it was pretty awkward. Um, so maybe you have some awkward wedding stories. Either way, it's quite memorable. In fact, if you have a good wedding story or memory, Uh, from your wedding or one you've attended, go ahead and share it in the chat, all right? Just let us know. We can share some stories there. Um, It's no surprise then that with all this that I absolutely love the passage we're looking at this morning in John chapter 2, because we're going to see Jesus as a guest at a wedding. Let's look at the text. John 2 verse 1. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus And his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. 
Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. And then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. And after this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and disciples, and there they stayed for a few days. All right, well, friends, there's, there's a lot to, to dive into here in the text, but I want to just start where the passage starts in verse 1. Jesus and his mom and his disciples and some other family members likely were invited to attend a wedding at Cana. Now, weddings in the ancient world looked a little bit different than they do today. Uh, Weddings were some of the most meaningful community events uh, in the course of an entire year. Hosts would invite as many people as possible. Often the celebration would last a full week. I don't know about you, but I kind of like that idea. If we could maybe bring that custom back and have week-long weddings, that would be great. Um, There's some layers here now to this text that you maybe noticed. There's some layers to what unfolds, a lot of detail, but let's start just by looking at what's right on the surface. Jesus, his disciples, his mom at a wedding, but this wedding has a problem. What's the problem? Verse 3, when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. So the wedding has run out of wine. That's the problem. There's no more wine. Now that is a big deal, friends, that the groom, the host, uh, would face a serious social dilemma here. It was their responsibility to provide the food, to provide the drink for the celebration, and failing to do so, running out during the wedding, would be embarrassing, shameful. It would communicate a lack of hospitality. I mean, they could become kind of the jest of the town for years to come, infamously remembered and talked about this wedding. Perhaps less so now, but even today, right? If you have a wedding and you run out of food or run out of wine there, uh, some eyebrows might be raised. Now we see what unfolds then after this problem. Jesus' mother said to him, verse 3, they have no more wine. And verse 4, Jesus responds kind of curiously, woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. Now, when we read this in English, it uh, sounds a little bit harsher than it really was. Woman was a, a respectful way to address someone. So it's not as if Jesus is angrily or dismissively saying, Woman, why are you telling me this? It's not really the tone here. It was respectful, but this also wasn't an endearing way that a son would usually talk to his mother. Most commentators note then that there's something going on here. Jesus is trying to say something. He says what? My hour has not yet come. 
his hour, which was speaking of the time when his public ministry would begin and ultimately lead to the cross. And Jesus is saying, hey, my hour, this, this ministry that I'm embarking on, will begin on, on my own terms. Right? God's plan of rescue and salvation was not to be influenced by a human agenda. And so Jesus' mother Mary, she was bold, but he reminds her gently that, that he will decide when the time is right. He will decide. He doesn't need her to force his hand necessarily. He says, my, my time has not yet come in a, an appropriately distanced response. And we're not exactly sure what she expected from him in that moment. Did she expect him to turn water into wine? Did she know that he was capable of doing that? What exactly was going through her mind? We don't exactly know, but the story continues. His mother said to his servants, kind of, kind of continuing on her you know, agenda, do whatever he tells you. She still has faith something's about to happen. In verse 6, nearby stood six stone water jars, the kinds used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. We see... Excuse me, Jesus said to his servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. And then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. And they did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He didn't realize where it came from, or so where it had come from through, excuse me, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, but you have saved the best till now. So Jesus ultimately decides that he does want to get involved here. And so he has the servants go fill these large stone jars and have them draw some of the water out and take it to the master of the banquet. And they'll realize it was turned into wine. The master of the banquet didn't know where it came from. He simply just knows this is the best wine of the night. This is the best wine of the whole celebration. And yes, a side note here, um, friends, this, this was real wine. Okay, so some, some Christians who think that Christians shouldn't drink alcohol will get a little bit squirrely with this passage and say things like, well, it wasn't real wine or it was so watered down that it was basically grape juice and so this, as there's no alcohol content in it. But that's, that, that's not the case, okay? This was, this was real wine. This was good wine. So Jesus played bartender at a wedding, okay? Let's, we just need to come to terms with that fact, now, there are plenty of appropriate reasons to not drink alcohol. Uh, no concerns there if that is your decision. But trying to pretend that Jesus and the disciples at this wedding didn't actually have wine uh, is not one of those reasonable or good reasons. So let's just be clear about that. Jesus works this miracle, and then he, he turns water into wine, and the wedding feast, the celebration then continues. Now, like other miracles we see in the Bible, Jesus walking on water or calming a storm or healing or raising Lazarus from the dead, whatever it might be, the, the miracle shows us the power of Jesus, right? Just on the surface level, we are amazed at, look at what Jesus can do. Look at his power over creation, over the created world. He does things that would be impossible for anyone else to do. It reveals that he is Lord. And that's very true. Even though apparently not everyone at the wedding was, was in on exactly what was happening, we read it and we can see it. But there's more here to this story, more layers than simply just the fact, hey, Jesus is powerful. He turned water into wine. Look at what he can do. That's part of it, but there's more here. 
Look at what verse 11 says. It says, What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. So this event was the first sign which revealed for us who Jesus is, and it led his disciples, you see it says, to believe in him. Now throughout the rest of the book, we'll see uh, various other signs, and the point of these signs is that they are intended to, to point us beyond the miracle itself to the miracle worker. Okay, the sign is intended to point us beyond just this raw act of power, points us beyond that to Jesus, the one who performed this sign, and what does it tell us about him? And you'll notice in the text that John, the author of the gospel, doesn't tell us the significance. You notice that? Sometimes in the Bible, where there's a miracle or a sign, the author of the gospel will say, hey, and here's what Jesus meant by this, or and here's what this displayed about Jesus. Or Jesus himself will say, hey, here's what this means. Here's what I'm trying to show you. But we don't get that here. Instead, we have to do a little bit of work. We have to do a little bit of digging and reflecting and thinking, what does this tell us about Jesus? I think there are a few things we can take away. Okay, the first is this. Jesus' kingdom is marked by a concern for people. Okay, maybe this is, again, one of the more surface elements we can take away here. Jesus' kingdom is marked by a concern for people. As we mentioned before, the bride and the groom and the hosts of the wedding were in trouble. They were headed for embarrassment. They were headed for shame. And Jesus steps in and in an act of power and mercy, he covers their shame and he blesses them. There's a key detail in verse 6. You might have noticed these stone jars that Jesus has the servants fill and use for water to turn into wine. Verse 6 tells us what? Those jars were for ceremonial washing. Okay, they had a special purpose. And it would have been seen by many as perhaps disrespectful or shameful even to take those jars uh, used for ceremonial washing, Jewish ritual purity, and to use them for another purpose. Okay, so some Pharisees, some religious leaders, or anyone who's really a strict adherent to tradition, to the Jewish law and rituals, could have been offended, scandalized that this Jewish man, Jesus, would do this with these jars. But we see in this act that Jesus values people more than ritual. You know that Jesus values people, and he's concerned more for the groom and the bride and their wedding and their family. He's more concerned about them than he is about upholding ritual. Now, by extension, then, we're reminded of Jesus' care for us, right? For everyday life, for the troubling situations that we find ourselves in, maybe for the trouble that you're in today as you're listening to this message. Jesus sees you. Jesus wants to be merciful to you. Jesus wants to meet your needs and care for you. He values people in a concern for people. Now, we know that that's not a promise that every uh, similar situation and problem 
we find ourselves in will be remedied like this. We don't have that promise, but we do see this heart of mercy that Jesus has for people. You may have heard the story of the young boy in Sunday school who was hearing a lesson about the wedding at Cana from his Sunday school teachers. And at the end of the lesson, the teachers asked, what does this story, boys and girls, tell us about Jesus? And this young boy raises his hand and after some thought and reflection explains, well, it means you should always invite Jesus to your wedding. And he is right. So Jesus' kingdom is marked by a concern for people. But there's another layer here to this story. We see that Jesus' kingdom is also marked by a new way to be clean. See, for a few chapters here in the book of John ahead, uh, we see that Jesus is going to take these Jewish customs, traditions, rituals, festivals, and, and use them to point to himself. Saying, hey, there's a way that things have been done, and these were really just preparing you to understand who I am. I'm the fulfillment of those rituals and traditions and ceremonies. There's a new way that's breaking in, right? The old has gone, and now the new has come. And so here again, think about these jars, verse 6, these ceremonial washing jars, each holding 20 to 30 gallons of water. We're not sure exactly how these jars were used in ceremonial washing. You know, were they used to wash hands before eating or clean utensils or pour over someone's head or fill up a big immersion tank that someone could be, you know, ceremonially uh, dipped in? We're not sure, but, but there's no stretch here in the text, and just seeing that these jars represent an old order of, of Jewish law, custom, ritual, purity. Religious purification is what they were for. In the Old Testament, we know places a big emphasis on being pure, on being clean, right? If you read through the Old Testament, especially the book of Leviticus, you'll see all this language about clean and unclean. There are laws about purity, laws about what animals you could eat that were clean versus unclean. Certain bodily functions made you unclean. Certain uh, interactions with dead things made you unclean. It was supposed to be to help the people of God see that there are things in this world that are tainted and affected, of course, by, by sin and by death, and that those things cannot be in the presence of God. The idea of purity and clean and unclean reinforced the holiness of God. God is pure, God is holy, God is set apart, so you cannot bring anything that is tainted or unclean into the presence of God. And so, of course, then there's a moral component wrapped up in all of this. Now, in the Old Testament, there was a way to deal with someone who was unclean. There were these ritual washings, ceremonial purification, uh, sacrifices. There were ways to become clean. And the jars at the wedding were a part of that. But now Jesus comes on the scene and he does this act that symbolizes the fact that there is this new way to be clean. The old way of being clean and being washed and renewed is being transformed like water into wine, into this new way to be clean through Jesus. 
You see, we'll read elsewhere in uh, Matthew 15, for example, there's this story where some Pharisees, these religious, these strict religious teachers come to Jesus and they say, hey, your disciples aren't washing their hands before they eat. And they were really worried about COVID back then too. And they say, hey, this is a big problem. Just kidding. They weren't worried about COVID. They weren't worried about germs necessarily. There was this ceremonial washing that was supposed to take place before some of them could eat. And the Pharisees say, hey, Jesus, your disciples aren't doing that. What's the deal? And what does Jesus say in that moment? He says, hey, COVID's not happening for another 2,000 years. No, just kidding. Not, okay, enough COVID jokes. I'm sorry. No, what does Jesus say? He says, hey, it's not about uh, food or things you touch or what goes into your body that makes you unclean. It's nothing external that's going to make you unclean. He says, actually, what makes you unclean is what comes up out of your heart. Because it's out of your heart that comes sin, evil thoughts, impurity, murder, sexual immorality, and so on. And so he says, hey, becoming clean is not a matter of, of washing your hands, some sort of ritual external uh, washing and purification. What the people really need is internal purification, internal transformation. That's what I came to bring. That's actually what those Old Testament laws were supposed to point you forward to this new cleansing and transformation. And so how are we made clean? What does Jesus say about how we're able to approach God today? Well, it's through his work. It's through his atoning death and his blood that covers over our sin and covers over our shame and cleanses us from the inside out and washes us and makes us new and clean and he gives us new hearts and he does not treat us how our sins deserve. Now, this may sound outdated, right? Being unclean, needing to be washed, talk about sin. But I think that if we reflect on this long enough, we'll realize that it's true. Right? People know they aren't clean. We know it. Every one of us, even if we try to kind of cover it up with, you know, positive talk or, or self-esteem, whatever, deep down we know that we're not fully the people that we're supposed to be. You know, we haven't lived the lives we're supposed to live. We've hurt people. We've sinned. We've been selfish. There's, there's sin, there's uncleanness in our hearts. But here's what's happened. As, as modern uh, people, often we've done away with categories like sin and guilt and shame, and we've taught to just kind of ignore those things or push those things away, and it's all just, again, positive self-talk is the only way we know how to deal with our guilt. And so we feel this guilt, we feel this shame, and so what we do is we, we try to explain it away, or we try to ignore it or push it down or say that anyone who talks about that is, is being mean or harsh or whatever it might be, but it's still there. We know it. So the question is, how do we get clean? Right? In the Old Testament, again, the Jews had this external system, right? Ceremonial washings of the body. Jesus said, hey, that had its place, but there's something new that I'm doing. There's a new way to be clean, a fulfillment of what we've been exploring. But I think today we still go back to that external cleansing, not in terms of religious ritual and washings like the Jews, but we have our own ways of getting clean on the outside, right? Doing enough good works to display 
that we're valuable, to display that the, the scale of good and bad is tipped in the right way in our lives. Or maybe we try and give money to absolve of our guilt. Or maybe we, I've noticed recently what we'll do is we'll go on social media and we'll make statements or people will cry out with kind of some kind of like public confession. Like we still have this need to confess where we put things out there uh, we make some public statement about a current event just to try to like absolve our guilt or distance ourselves from it or um, be on the right side of history or whatever it may be, this sort of public uh, confession on social media. But I think that's, that's pointing us to some reality. We have a desire to confess, to acknowledge what's true about ourselves. I've quoted James K.A. Smith, Christian theologian, who says, what if the opportunity to confess is precisely what we long for? What if an invitation to confess our sin is actually the answer to our seeking? What if we want to confess our sins and didn't realize it until given the opportunity? In other words, what if confession is unwittingly the desire of every broken heart? Again, what if we we realize we're sinful, we realize we're guilty, we realize we're unclean, and we want to confess. We want to acknowledge that. We want to recognize that that is true, to speak what is true about ourselves. Now, the problem is often in the world when there's confession and acknowledging of guilt, there's no redemption, right? It's just someone's just canceled and they're gone. There's no restoration. There's no grace and forgiveness. But in Christ, we do see that there's not only confession and acknowledgement of sin and repentance, but then there's cleansing and forgiveness and mercy and grace. Jesus comes along and shows, hey, there is nothing externally you can do to get clean. Your heart is dirty. It's sinful. You need to be washed, but there's nothing you can do to wash it. There's only one way to get clean, to be made righteous before God. He says, come to me come to me. Let me wash you. Let me forgive you. Let me cleanse you. Let me renew your heart. Let me give you a new heart and take out that old sinful heart and replace it with a heart that is new. Let me cleanse you. Let me heal you. Jesus does this through his work on the cross. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, because all our sin and all our punishment for that sin was placed upon him so that we could experience the grace of God. So, friends, Jesus' kingdom is marked by a concern for people, by a new way to be clean, and lastly, a celebration and abundance. You know, I don't think it's an accident that Jesus' first public sign and Miracle is done at a wedding. His first sign is done to keep a big party, a celebration going. I think that tells us something about the kingdom of God and about where we're headed and what Jesus came to bring. Salvation and our eternity is not just about being swept away onto a cloud in some kind of spirit realm some sort of disembodied existence in the clouds. That's not the picture of salvation that the Bible paints for us. No, instead, the Bible uses pictures like weddings, like feasts, to tell us about what 
our eternity with God will be like, where we'll live and eat and laugh and play with God in his good, renewed, material world. And I think sometimes we, we miss this part of the Christian life. Right? The, the joy, the celebration, the, the festive spirit that we can have in Christ. Some of us have the spiritual gift of grumpiness. I'm not going to name names, but sometimes we have that spiritual gift. Now, uh, certainly our world, hear me, is, is broken. Our hearts are made heavy by constant tragedy and loss. So I don't, I don't want to make light of that. I know that many of you are listening this morning and you're dealing with heavy stuff, with grief, with loss, with, with pain. Okay, life may be really hard right now and, and you're feeling the brokenness of a sinful world. So I don't want to downplay that or make light of that. But what I, what I hope this text can do is kind of point us uh, to eternity and, and give us hope that we can see the hope of the gospel, what we can look forward to as Christians. I think this, this wedding at Cana foreshadows another wedding that we're longing for, and that's the wedding of Jesus and his people, the groom and the bride. The book of Revelation speaks of the marriage supper of the Lamb. This, this great messianic banquet is another term that's used at the end of all time. One day, Jesus will return. Jesus will judge the earth and evil and evildoers will be condemned. But those who have been redeemed and forgiven and put their trust in Jesus will be with him forever. We'll be fully united to him. We'll see him face to face. We'll celebrate with him in the new heavens and the new earth as our tears are wiped away be comforted and seeing how somehow even, even the pain and the grief and, and the loss in our life, God will take it and use it for glory. Friends, it was believed that the age of the Messiah would be marked by celebration and abundance. There were Old Testament passages that speak to how wine would flow abundantly, much like the 120 or so gallons of wine that Jesus the Messiah serves up at this wedding. So friends, this passage is pointing us forward to the abundance and the celebration that we can have in the kingdom of God through Jesus. And what does verse 11 say as it ends? This act revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. So even then, they don't see the fullness of who Jesus is and exactly what's ahead with the work of the cross and the resurrection that's to come. But already they're starting to see Jesus' power in that moment. They see his concern for people. They see this new way to be clean, this new order that's breaking into the world, and they see the celebration, this provision, this abundance that Jesus the Messiah came to bring. And they saw it and they believed. And the invitation is for us to do the same. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you for who you are as this text reveals your love for us. It reveals this new way to be clean that you have made a way, Jesus, to wash us. And we, we acknowledge before you, we confess that we 
have sinned and fallen short. We are a people who are in need of your grace and mercy. And we thank you that you do not leave us there to wallow in sin and shame and guilt and death and judgment. Jesus, you came to call us out of that, to forgive us, to redeem us, to give us new hearts and a new identity as your children and as your people. So we again this morning remember the gospel and what you have come to accomplish. Lord Jesus, we look forward to the day when you will wipe every tear from every eye, where we we will celebrate and live in abundance in your new kingdom. We love you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen.